Let's pray together. Our Father, apart from your grace, we know that our eyes would not be able to see, our ears would not be able to hear, our minds would be too dark to understand, our hearts would be too hard to believe anything about you. Your grace has come, and we pray that it would come again, and that the Holy Spirit himself would open eyes and ears and soften hearts and illuminate minds to see your word, that we would not miss the hour that's in front of us, that we would not neglect so great a salvation, but today would be the day where we press in and hear and receive all that you have for us. Come by your Holy Spirit and ensure that happens for each man, individually, each woman, each child here. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a very well-known story that I know that many of you know about a boy and starfish. The story goes that there's a boy on a shore and there's thousands of starfish that have sort of gone on shore and they're drying up in the heat of the sun. And this boy is seen just taking one at a time and throwing them back into the ocean. The story goes that a man walked by and saw the boy doing this and saw the thousands of starfish there. And after a while of seeing the boy continuing to do this over and over again, couldn't help himself and just finally had to say, what are you doing? What difference do you think you could possibly make? And the story goes that the boy just quietly picked up another starfish, threw it into the ocean, and simply remarked, well, it made a difference for that one, right? And the story is told to sort of help us and motivate us and inspire us, particularly when you face challenges and things that just seem overwhelming, that seem like they're too big for you to tackle. For example, uh, we partner with Bombay Teen Challenge. There are, according to stats today, somewhere around 27 million slaves in the world, more perhaps than any time in the history of the world. And so, though you do fundraisers and do kinds of works, you can't help but wonder at some point, what difference do you think you could possibly make? Or, for example, this past Thursday, we had something called Parlor Talks. We tried to talk through with the community folks, with police officers and leaders from the African-American community, tried to talk through race and violence and what's happening in our country. One history professor, African-American history professor and a lawyer, he began to just speak about racism in the history of our country. He began to speak about the Civil War and then the many years of the Jim Crow laws segregating blacks and whites. Then he spoke about even after, how, after the laws had passed, all the years of housing discrimination and all the effect that that had. And when you heard that this wasn't just one person's story, but was compounded in a national history and a national story and a complex system, then you couldn't help but wonder, what difference can you possibly hope to make? I mean, what's one conversation in Willow Grove with some 60 people going to make towards that whole big thing? There are times like that where it's overwhelming. And, and when it's overwhelming like that, it's, it's hard to fight against the sort of tide in your heart that naturally flows towards cynicism, to swim upstream against that and to try and fight to remember that making a difference for even one matters. It made a difference to that one, after all. It's hard, and so we fight for that. Uh, there's a quote attributed to Mother Teresa that's become famous. She's been noted to say, if you can't feed 100 people, 
than just feed one. And something about that resonates with us because it reminds us that even if you can't tackle everything, you can tackle something. Even if you can't serve everyone, you can serve someone. Well, this morning, in the passage we're looking at, and in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we'll see that Jesus, amidst the myriad of needs, and amidst the multitude of people that would come to Jesus, Jesus had this remarkable ability to see the individual. Right? You should take note of that. Amidst the multitude of people that come to him, amidst the never-ending myriad of needs that press into him, Jesus had this remarkable ability to see and minister to and serve and love the individual. In that way, Jesus was extraordinary and even extraordinarily humble. I've been thinking some a bit about humility lately. And in particular, what's made me think about that is this quote that I read from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had this quote where he said, if you met a truly humble person, he wouldn't even seem humble to you. That if you met a truly humble person, he would just seem incredibly interested in you. And his point was to say that the humble person isn't obsessed with being self-deprecating. Because the truly humble person isn't someone who thinks less of themselves, but is free to think of themselves less. There's a difference, right? A, a truly humble person is free to be interested in you. Jesus had this remarkable humility. He could count others as more significant than themselves and, and consider their interests. And when you were around Jesus, I imagine that he was really present with you. That when you were talking to Jesus, hear me, his eyes weren't sort of wandering to the other person in the room that he was thinking of having a conversation with. That when you were talking to Jesus, you didn't have this thought of whether he was distracted by some other thoughts, but that he was really with you in that moment. Jesus had a remarkable ability to press in past the crowds and meet you and minister to you. And Mark gives us a snapshot of that this morning. In the passage we're looking at, Mark gives us a snapshot of what it was to be one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, what it would have been like to encounter Jesus. And through that, I think you get a glimpse of how he encounters us, even more specifically, how he encounters you. I want you to have permission from the scriptures this morning to think about how Jesus relates to you, to you individually, to you specifically. And then secondarily, I would even suggest that once we catch that glimpse of how Jesus interacts and ministers to us as believers, it might even give us a picture of how we are to interact with others. When we see how he ministers to us, it gives us a model for how we might minister to others what our posture should be to others in light of what his posture is towards us. And what I want to suggest this morning is that Jesus meets us individually, Jesus meets us empathetically, and Jesus meets us redemptively. Right? That's the three things I think we see in this scene. That Jesus meets us individually, he meets us empathetically, and he meets us redemptively. The way this encounter starts with Jesus is in Mark 7, verse 31. So if you've got a Bible, turn it open to there. That's where we'll be camped out this morning. Mark 7, verse 31 to 37, the passage Mike just read for us. And it starts in verse 31 by telling us that Jesus 
was basically in Gentile territory. You see places like Tyre and Sidon listed there. You hear the Decapolis mentioned there. And what that is, is Gentile territory. Gentile just means not Jewish. And the Jewish people thought that the people who were not Jewish were people that were far away from God. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus is now spending his time doing ministry among the people that are not near God, that are far away from God. Jesus, a Jewish man, Israel's Savior, is now in Gentile territory, and he's staying in Gentile territory and doing ministry in Gentile territory. And then, verse 31, we're told that he's in the region of the Decapolis. If that sounds familiar to some of your ears, it's because we've seen Jesus in that spot before. As we've walked walk through the story of Mark, we saw back in chapter 5 that Jesus had come to the Decapolis. If you remember, he had gone through that terrible storm, come to the other side. Just as the boat had been docked, a man came running out of the tombs, a naked man bleeding who had been possessed by a legion of demons. That's what we saw when Jesus had come to the Decapolis. And then we saw that Jesus cast out those demons. The demons went running into the pigs. The pigs went over the cliff into the waters. And if you remember, the people of the Decapolis came to Jesus and begged him to leave their region. The man who had been healed also begged Jesus in that story to go with him. But if you remember, Jesus said, I don't want you to come with me. You stay here. Go home, tell your friends, your families, your neighbors, your relatives about what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's the first missionary sent out in the gospel account of Mark. This far away from God, unclean Gentile man. And it seems that he's a pretty good missionary. Because now, when Jesus returns to the Decapolis, the same region that had begged Jesus to depart from them now shows up with a crowd of people that are begging Jesus to stay and lay his hands upon them. Verse 32, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. The same region that had begged Jesus to leave is now begging Jesus to stay, and not just stay, but to lay his hands upon this deaf, mute man that the crowds bring to Jesus. Now, I want to take a one-second aside, a, a, a one-second tangent. I was struck by how often we've seen now in Mark people who are so concerned about someone else that they beg Jesus on behalf of the other. Right? You see this happening in Mark over and over again, that there's these loved ones who so badly need Jesus to intervene in the life of their loved one that they come to Jesus and they beg Jesus on the behalf of another. It happens over and over again in a way that you almost can't miss in the narrative. In chapter 1, Jesus had healed a man in the synagogue, cast out a demon. By chapter 1, verse 32, later that evening itself, the entire city shows up at Jesus' door. And it says, they brought to him those who were sick and oppressed. Meaning, there were folks in the church service that morning. They saw what Jesus had the power to do. They went home that afternoon and brought everybody in need and showed up at the city door, at Jesus' door, the whole city, to bring people to Jesus. Chapter 2 starts, and the story is of four men that take a paralytic, and he can't even walk. They can't even get to Jesus. There's a crowd by the door. They're literally going to tear the roof off the place to bring their friend to Jesus. 
So a crowd's not going to stop them. The building's not going to stop them. The roof is not going to stop them. They need Jesus to meet their friend. Chapter 5, you see a man whose daughter is sick. And he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And he earnestly, the text says, implores him and begs him that he would come and lay his hand on his daughter so that she may be well and alive. Chapter 6. They hear that Jesus is just in the region, and so the people go throughout the region, and they grab the sick on their beds, the text says. Meaning they couldn't even get the sick to walk to Jesus, so they go, no problem, we'll carry the bed to him. They carry the beds to Jesus, and then they say to Jesus, let these folks just touch the edge of your garment. Meaning they don't even have to touch you, you don't have to touch them, just let them come near your pant leg and it'll be enough. And then we saw last week in the passage right before the one we're looking at that Kevin preached for us how this mother had a daughter who was sick, who had a demon, and she comes and she says, please heal my daughter. The daughter's not even there. And she says, heal him. And and Jesus gives a parable that sort of puts her off at first, but she's going to press through and she will not stop until Jesus ministers to this other one. I think with these repeated accounts, it's, it's perhaps a picture for us of what we ought to be like. It, I know that at least this week it has impacted my own prayer life. It's impacted the way that I've prayed for Kostya and Jamie. And I've thought to myself, Lord, they've been two weeks now without Zion on the planet. So what, what ought we to do? Must we not be like the people of Mark? that press in and say to Jesus and beg him, you have to lay your hand upon them. You have to sustain them. You have to comfort them. They absolutely need your touch right now. Ought we not be mothers and fathers that implore Jesus to lay his hands of blessing on our sons and daughters like the desperate ones in Mark? Ought we not to be the kinds of friends that see our friends don't know Jesus or are wandering away from Him and plead with Jesus and implore Him? You have to touch them. You have to lay your hand of blessing upon them. I think there's something to be observed with these desperate people who bring others to Jesus and will not stop until He lays His hand upon them. It's the same thing here. You'll see it in the weeks to come. This crowd in the Decapolis who once wanted nothing to do with Jesus and begged him to leave, is now begging Jesus to please touch and lay his hand on their deaf, mute, I don't know, relative, friend, loved one. And so now this man comes and you see Jesus ministering to this man, I want to suggest, individually, empathetically, and redemptively. And when you see him do that for this man, I want you to hear that's how he meets us as well. That's how he meets you. So the first thing I want you to see is Jesus meets you individually. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. Now, at first, everything about that seems odd and none of it makes sense. Why does he pull him aside privately? Why does Jesus give him a wet willy? And why does, what's this deal with the spit, right? None of that makes sense, and I don't know that I could make much sense of it, right? I'm sure there's some background stuff and practices of their day, uh, but at first you almost feel like maybe you're watching some kind of healing ritual, like Jesus had to perform these certain steps to heal this man, except Mark would have already showed us that that couldn't possibly be true. 
It, it can't be that there's sort of a ritual or a formula that Jesus follows because we've seen Jesus exhibit his power in healing, and he never follows a formula. There's never a ritual. There's never a step one, put finger in ear. It never happens like that, right? We've seen Jesus do this. When the leper came to Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus reached out and touched the leper and said, be clean. But then Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus doesn't say anything. He simply grabs her by the hand, picks her up, and the fever leaves her. Then there's a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Jesus doesn't touch him, doesn't say much except to say, stretch out your hand, and he's healed. The Syrophoenician woman last week, the daughter's not even there. The, the mom came and said, here's what I need you to do. They have this exchange, and Jesus simply says, go home. She's fine. No word, no touch, she's not even there. So which is it? Is, is it that he's got to touch him? Is it that he's got to say something? Or then when the storm was brewing on the sea, one time he says, quiet, peace, be still. And with his word, the storm stops. The next time there's a storm, he doesn't say anything. He simply gets into the boat and the winds die down. So which is it? Does he have to be on the water? Does he have to be in the boat? Does he have to say something or not say something? Does he have to touch or not touch? Mark has given us enough stories by now that we know it has nothing to do with how Jesus does it, but everything to do with the fact that it's Jesus who does it. The power is not in how he does it. The power is in that it's Jesus who does it. And Jesus seems to have this ability to minister to each person as that person needed. He doesn't have a one-size-fits-all ministry. He's got sort of a custom-tailored ministry to each person he's encountered. So now, I think that's what's happening here. Here's a man who's been deaf, who's got a speech impediment, meaning he can't speak. And Jesus, what does he do? He pulls this man aside, away from all the crowds, and now he's alone with this man. He's one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ. Oh, and when you think of that, God in the flesh has pulled this man aside to have a personal encounter with him. He's far away from the noise and the bustle of all the people, and Jesus has pulled this nameless, deaf, mute man aside to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Almighty God. And there, what does Jesus do? Some have suggested that perhaps what Jesus is doing is communicating to this man in a way that he can understand. Maybe this is some kind of ancient sign language. Maybe what he's doing is he's telling this man, your ears, I'm about to heal them. Maybe he's saying, your tongue, I'm about to make it open and loosen. Whatever it is, this man is met by and ministered to by Jesus individually and personally. And Jesus does that. Isn't it amazing when Jesus encountered the leper Surely the one who said, be still, and the waves stopped. Surely the one who said, let there be light, and there was, could have simply said to the leper, be clean. And yet, why did Jesus touch the untouchable man? Surely a word would have done. Why did he stretch out his hands, moved with compassion and pity, and touch a man who had not been touched? When he said to him, be clean. Jesus has this amazing ability to engage us, to meet us, to minister to us 
individually, personally. And when you let that in for a moment, isn't it something, dear brother and sister, that the Savior of the world had come? And, and be sure, he had global things to accomplish, right? His life, his death, his resurrection was for the salvation of the entire human race. Now, I want to say not even just global things. He had cosmic things to accomplish because by his death and resurrection, he was going to not only save humanity, he was going to put back together the entire universe. All things were going to be right. We read a few weeks ago, Romans 8 saying, all creation is groaning for the day when salvation is complete. He, by his life, death, and resurrection, was going to make planets and stars and mountains and trees, the entire created thing, right again. And is it not amazing that in the midst of the wide-sweeping, global and cosmic things that Jesus had come to accomplish, it was not beyond him to deal with one unnamed, deaf, mute man in the Decapolis that nobody knows who he even is. And nobody would have given him a second thought. And the Savior of the world had come to accomplish the salvation of the entire cosmos and yet it wasn't beyond him to pull aside a deaf-mute man and minister to him one-on-one. -on -one. Is it not something for you to hear this morning? Jesus loves the whole world, but he loves you. I feel like that ending of Goodwill Hunting where he's got to keep saying this phrase over and over again so that you get it. Like when he says, it's not your fault, and he's got to say it ten times. In the same way, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves you. You, individually. He loves your neighbor. He loves the person sitting right next to you. He loves our city and our country and our world. But is it not something incredible to imagine that the God who came to save the cosmos loves and knows you? You, individually. And when God gives you glimpses of that, it's staggering. It floods your soul. I remember a few years ago going to Starbucks right here on Red Lion and the Boulevard. Northeast Starbucks, it was just a season of life where I just remember being overwhelmed by church and all these different things, just wondering where God was in all of that. And I remember being in that Starbucks, a man I had never met before, have never seen since, was sitting at the Starbucks. We got into some dialogue, some conversation. Turned out that he found out that I was a believer and a pastor. He was a believer. We started talking together. Halfway through the conversation, he reaches into his wallet and he pulls out $200 bills. And he goes, I just feel like the Lord wants you to have this. And I told him, listen, listen, I just dress bad. I promise I'm not poor, right? I, I, I have no need. The church pays me well. I get a salary. If anything I said communicated that, I didn't mean to do that at all. I'm doing really well. He said, I, I don't know about any of that. I just want you to know our Father is incredibly generous and he wants you to know he could do that. I protested and fought back a little bit more. By the end of the conversation, I had $200 in my hand. Now, I didn't need $200. But what I did need that day was to know that the God of the universe was aware of me. That somehow, me sitting in a Starbucks on Red Lion Boulevard wasn't beyond his awareness. 
Wasn't beyond the scope of all the things he had to do. I mean, he's got the universe to sustain, nations to uphold, governments to keep. He's got all things in his hand. And yet me sitting at Red Lion Boulevard wasn't outside of his awareness, wasn't outside of his concern, wasn't outside of his need to remind me, I know about you. I haven't forgotten about you. And moreover, I love you. And I just want you to know on this random day, I am incredibly generous. God loves the whole world, but he loves you. He's come to save the whole world, but he's come to save you. Jesus meets us and wants to meet you this morning individually. But not only that, Jesus meets us empathetically. Because the text continues, verse 34 Having pulled this man aside, having stuck his finger in his ears and spit, then, verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Jesus pulls this man aside. He looks up to heaven. He looks to his father. And then, seeing this man in his condition, he sighs. Did you catch that? Commentators have made notice that Mark doesn't often mention the emotions of Jesus. He doesn't mention it much. And so when he does, we should probably pay attention. He sighs. God the Son in the flesh looks at this man in his condition, sees a deaf, mute man who cannot get out a word, and God sighs. I imagine that in these past few weeks, many of you have done the same exact thing. I imagine this is very relevant because I imagine when you heard that Zion passed away and you didn't know what words to form on your tongue, I imagine you let out a sigh. I imagine as you've seen the things happening on the news in our world, a sigh. I imagine in some of the things you are going through that no one else knows about. There has been in the morning hours, in the evening hours, at night, on the bed, a sigh. Is it not a staggering thought that Jesus Christ, God of the universe, sighs over this deaf-mute man? These are scenes in the Bible that I don't fully understand and can't fully explain, but they're here, and they're good that they're here, because I've got a desire to have a really tight, good theology, and these scenes sort of mess that up in a way that I don't really know what to do with it. For example, you get another scene like this in the Gospel accounts. Jesus is at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. If you remember that story, Lazarus is dead. His sisters are weeping and wailing. And here's the part of the story I don't understand. Jesus knows what he's about to do for his buddy. He knows. In fact, he delayed so that God would be glorified through this whole thing. He knows he's about to say, Lazarus, come forth, and this dead man is going to come out. If that were me, I would be hiding giddiness. Wouldn't you? If you knew while all these people are crying, and you in a moment are about to raise this guy from the dead, wouldn't you be trying to hide and suppress a laugh, going, I know something you don't know, right? I know what I'm about to do here. And in a way that I don't fully understand, all his omniscience, meaning he knows everything, and all his omnipotence, meaning he can do everything, doesn't stop the text from telling us repeatedly Jesus was deeply moved. 
that he had seen the consequences of sin in this world, that he had seen the destruction of brokenness that sin had caused, that he saw his dead friend and his two weeping friends, and it did not stop despite he knows all things, can do all things, is about to raise this man from the dead from being deeply moved, and not just deeply moved, but from weeping. And when you get that, you don't even know what to do with it because you probably want to go, maybe it was artificial fake weeping. Because how could he know what he's about to do and know all things and genuinely in the moment be with them and weep with those who weep and be deeply troubled and moved by the suffering of this people? It's a staggering thing that Jesus could stand by the tomb of the, the man Lazarus or stand, look to his Father in heaven, look back at this deaf, mute man in his awful condition, and sigh, be moved in his heart, feeling this is not the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the way, Father, you made this to be. It's not supposed to be this way. It's an amazing thing that an all-powerful, all-knowing God can mourn with those who mourn, and grieve with those who grieve, and sigh with those who sigh. It's an incredible thing. In that way, Jesus is not like Superman. Superman is all-powerful, but he doesn't bleed when you cut him, and the bullets don't phase him. He looks like us, but he's not really like us. That's not Jesus. In fact, he came so that when you cut him, he would bleed. He came to know your pain. He came to identify with you. He may not know every expression of what you've been through, but he knows the essence of all that we've been through. And he's come to identify with that. It's an incredible thing to know that Jesus meets us individually and then meets us empathetically. And what a challenge that should be to us, Seven Mile Road. That secondarily, if this is how he ministers to us, should this not shape how we minister to others? In fact, I want you to apply this for a moment to the very present moment our country finds itself in. To the very present moment that you find your neighbors and citizens and co-workers in. In this very present moment, would it not be a word to us that as we seek to engage in this discussion, we should do so empathetically? Empathetically. Part of what made last Thursday's conversation with Two Caucasian police officers, one African-American police officers, two African-American community leaders, one Caucasian pastor serving an African-American community in that mixed panel on Thursday. Part of what made the night so great was not that we came out with solutions or a way to fix it all, but that you had enough time to get under someone's skin and feel what they feel, to, to not be so quick to speak and be ready to hear and to feel what they feel, right? Is that not the opportunity we have as the church of Jesus Christ, even in this present hour? I was hearing one pastor try to speak to this and try to call people to empathy, and he told how just a few weeks ago in his congregation, a very young boy drowned. Not just drowned, drowned at a church member's home at a small group gathering. And so as he's dealing with that, he said that he went to the room, and can you imagine... His first conversation was not who was supposed to be watching the kid. His first conversation wasn't, don't we have policies in place for this? His first conversation was to see mom and dad wrecked in the corner 
and grieve with those who grieve and feel what they feel and mourn with those who mourn. In this present hour, whatever your take on whatever it may be, ought that not shape our response as well? So that on Thursday night when I hear an African-American police officer say, I feel like a target all times. He literally said, when I'm out of uniform, I'm a large African male who's got a, pol who's got a gun in my holster, and I don't know if I'll be mistaken as a criminal. So I'm a target. And then when I'm in uniform, I'm the very thing that people are protesting against, and so I'm a target. And I live my day at all times walking around as a walking target. Now, whatever you think, should you not feel what he feels? Should we not move with empathy? It's an incredible thing. Jesus meets us individually, and he meets us empathetically. He sighs with those who sigh. Whatever you're going through this morning, I want you to hear, you have a Savior who sighs with you. But lastly and finally, Jesus meets us redemptively. Thanks be to God, he is not just a shoulder to cry on. He is the one person who can redeem the mess. Verse 34, looking up to heaven, he says, Afafta, be open. Verse 35, and his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus says, Afafta, and because we don't know what it means, and many of Mark's readers wouldn't have known, he tells us that means be open. And suddenly it was open. His ears were open, his tongue was loosed. Oh, what it would have been to be around that man at that moment. What would he have said? What noises would he have suddenly heard? And then, odd of all, Jesus says, okay, now that I've opened your mouth, make sure you shut your mouth, right? You go from here and you shut your mouth. And you'd imagine the man could say, I can hear you say that, right? I can hear you now. Tell me finally to open my mouth and now shut my mouth. He says, don't go tell anyone about this. Now, this is one of those odd things. Why does Jesus keep doing this? Why does he keep telling people not to tell anyone? In fact, part of me, the simple part of me, wants to say, what's the point of performing a miracle if no one's going to see it? Right? If a tree falls in the forest and no one is here to make, hear the sound, you know the saying, right? Then what's the, in the same way, what's the point of the miracle if there's no one to know about it? It seems Mark has clearly been telling us Jesus doesn't perform these miracles to grow in popularity. That's what I would have thought. You show off a few stunts, people will believe this following could get big. Why would you pull off a miracle in a corner no one's going to know about? And Mark says Jesus doesn't want to be known as the healer. He's not trying to gain that kind of popularity or reputation. Instead, Jesus' miracles aren't random acts of power. It's not a magician showing off. Jesus' miracles are deliberate demonstrations that he has come to restore the world to what it's supposed to be. These aren't just naked displays of power. This isn't Jesus showing off. He, in each of these miracles, is saying, this is how the world's supposed to be. I'm, I'm, I'm curing the blind because in the world that I have come to make and remake, there are no blind. I feed the 5,000 because in the world that I am bringing about, there are no hungry. I raise the dead because in the world that I am coming to establish, 
There are no dead. I heal the deaf and the mute because in the world that I am coming to establish, there are no deaf and there are no mute. You see, Jesus is restoring and repairing and redeeming the world to what it was supposed to be. Because not only does he deal with us empathetically, he alone can deal with the world and deal with you redemptively. He can make things as it was supposed to be. And you get a hint of this in what the people say. Notice what they say in verse 37. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute, pay attention to that word, mute speak. Mute. Now commentators, the really smart guys who help us so much, they tell us this word mute appears in only one other place in the entire Bible. Mark could have chosen other words. He doesn't. He chooses a very peculiar word that only shows up in one other place in the Bible. And that place is way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is this prophecy about how God will come and redeem the world and restore it all and make it all right. It's a prophecy about the last days that God is going to come. Israel, don't worry anymore. Your God will come. He'll make it all right. In fact, hear these words from Isaiah 35. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And when that happens, here's what will happen. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the... There's our word, mute, sing for joy. Mark goes and borrows a word from Isaiah 35 so that every reader would know, listen, Israel, you've been promised that your God will come. He will save you. So stand up and be strengthened in this very trying hour because your God's going to come. And when he comes, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will be opened. And Mark is saying, That day has come. Israel, that promise is coming true. And what should blow your mind away is that promise is coming true when Jesus is in Gentile territory. That promise for Israel is coming true while he's standing in Gentile land. Meaning to say, this promise is for the whole world. And Jesus is coming to make it all true. He's come not only to deal with you individually and not only to sigh with you empathetically, he has come to redeem the whole world and to redeem you. Now, if you ask, and it would be appropriate for you to ask, but there's still brokenness in the world. Sure, he's come to redeem it all, but there's still deafness. You can heal one deaf man, but there's still others. You can raise one dead man, but still others die then I would say to you, friend, take heart. Take heart because the sun in the sky doesn't come up in an instant. You know, when it turns to 12.01 a.m., I promise you at 12.01 a.m., the night is done and the day has come. But it's still dark out. And the sun doesn't show up at 12.01 a.m. bright in all its glory. Instead, it comes up slowly and gradually. 
and the darkness slowly gives away, and the shadows begin to dissipate, and when the day fully dawns and arrives, darkness can be there no more. And Mark is saying to us, when Jesus came, it was 12.01 a.m. And you and I are living in the early morning hours. It may seem dark. And if you're up at 12.01 a.m., you may wonder to yourself, will morning ever come? But I promise you, it's a new day. The night is over. Dawn has come. And when he fully arrives, darkness will be no more. The darkness is beginning to dissipate. The shadows are beginning to go away. Light is emerging. He will return. And when he does, the day will fully arrive. And Mark is saying, when he came, that day dawned. Because the deaf are hearing. And the tongue of the mute are now singing for joy. He has come to redeem all things. So I want you to hear this morning. Jesus wants today to minister to you individually. He came and died for the whole world, but he came and died for you. I want you to have permission from the scriptures to believe today. He died for the sins of the whole world. He died for your sins, the ones you know about, the ones you're troubled by, the ones that plague and bother you. He died for your sins. He rose again for your right standing with God. He came for you. He came for the whole world. He knows everyone by name, but he knows you. He knows you. You're freed to know that today. And he deals with you empathetically, not only individually. He sighs over the brokenness of this world and the consequences of sin and the things that rip you apart. He sighs with those who sigh. He mourns with those who mourn. He grieves with those who grieve. He weeps with those who weep. But he has come also to deal with you redemptively. He died and rose again to bring about a new day. And that day is here and is fully coming. And when that day comes, he will make the whole world right again. And moreover, he will make you right again. So that the world and you will finally be what you were supposed to be. Oh, that God would take our deaf ears today and let us hear. And cause our tongues to be loosened so that we would say with the people of the Decapolis, he has done all things well. Let's pray together.